You're listening to AIB Market Talk with our latest financial market update. Hello and welcome to our special Market Talk podcast with AIB Private Banking. I'm Jane Kavanagh from AIB Corporate Treasury and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Sarah McGee, Senior Investment Consultant with AIB Private Banking and John Fahey, our Senior Economist in AIB. John and Sarah, a new year. Welcome back. Hello. Hi, Jane. John and Sarah, we might briefly look back in quarter four and the year that was 2020 before we look forward. John, if I may go straight to you first, the fourth quarter brought us the news we'd all been waiting for with the approval of three COVID-19 vaccines. And we also saw Brexit deal at the last hour and an eventual, albeit disputed, winner in the US election. Tell us, how did this impact the global economy, John? Yeah, so when we look at last year and the last quarter, we have to look at it in the context of the in terms of performance in the lead up to that. So whilst the news was good, as you say, in terms of the vaccine and some of the uncertainty out there around Brexit and the US presidential been removed, the economic data was a bit lagging the impact of that. So what we saw last year, you know, it's, in some instances, it's best to forget about 2020. But in the first half of the year, we had a very deep recession. Then we saw activity rebound over the summer as the lockdown restrictions were lifted. But then as we moved through the autumn into the winter, recovery lost momentum again. So even though that vaccine news was a positive and it will be a positive this year, as we'll talk about shortly, the economic data was consistent with a lost momentum. And the fact is, when we do get the quarter four data for all the major advanced economies, we probably will see growth stalling or potentially contracting again because of the fact that a lot of those restrictions were reimposed to help deal with the pandemic and as numbers rose as we move towards the end of the year. So the economic data suggested a lost momentum in Q4. But some of the developments, as you say there, around the vaccine and and removal of some uncertainty elsewhere is a positive as as we look ahead to this year. Thanks, John. Sarah, turning to you and following on from what John has just outlined, the indices all performed well in the quarter with both the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq once again reaching new highs. But interestingly, not wholly driven this time by US tech stocks. Yes, Jane. So if we look at the beginning of Q4, we saw investors adopting a more of a wait and see approach. So we saw rising COVID cases across Europe and the reintroduction of lockdown measures, which was becoming a concern for markets. And this coupled with the impending US election caused some volatility and led to a pullback in global equities of around negative 2.4% in euro terms. However, once we got through the US election and the Democrats won the US election, We saw that positivity coming through the market and actually stretching into the wider market. So we saw the Dow Jones finish out the quarter positive 10.2% and it was actually up 7.2% year to date. Now I know that this is still quite drastically behind where the S&P and the Nasdaq had fallen throughout the year, but it just shows that the positivity of the vaccination programmes, the higher fiscal stimulus measures to be introduced by the US government. And obviously we know that there's been kind of a no cap mentality surrounding the support within Europe as well. And that progression towards the positivity of looking at the return to a normal life has led to a rotation away from those tech stocks, which are obviously they benefit massively from lockdown measures to kind of the more cyclical stocks. Thanks, Sarah. John, coming back to you, it was a positive end to the year, as you mentioned, but also, as you alluded to, a third deadly wave of the virus has seen a reimposition of restrictions in many of the key advanced economies. How is this going to impact the outlook for the economy as we look forward to 2021? Yeah, so most economies are beginning the year under fresh lockdowns and restrictions. So we're seeing significant disruption to activity as a result. And this is likely to continue in the opening months of the year. 
But as we said at the outset, the vaccine will probably become more widely available over the course of 2021. And this will help underpin a, a sustain what we expect to be a robust recovery over the next couple of years. Although I would emphasize that even though we will get a return to growth this year, it's probably going to be two to three years before a lot of those advanced economies, especially in Europe, get back to the levels of where they are before the crisis hits. So, you know, the US probably will get back to where it was as we move into 2022, but many European countries, given the projections we have for growth there, not envisaged to regain that lost output level they had before COVID hit, probably until 2023. So recovery will get underway this year as we move through. What you likely see is that after the first couple of months, the restrictions get eased back again. A more wider rollout of the vaccine play a key part in that. Some level of return to normality in the second half of the year, and we see a return to growth and a full year growth being registered as we move through this year into next year. But I suppose you could phrase the recovery as been a two to three year rather than a sudden sharp recovery from where we were. Yeah, John, we see the eurozone has been and we expect it will be in a prolonged period of low interest rates with a bit of noise, I suppose, coming from the UK with regard to negative rates. How do you see the impact on the monetary policy globally from the pandemic? Well, when we look at the macro outlook, so we'll see a return to growth this year, but it's a two to three year time frame before we kind of fully recover that last output. So what that means is that monetary policy is likely to remain very accommodative. And we've actually heard from all the major central banks that that will remain the case. So if we just look back first from a policy perspective in terms of what the central banks did last year, you know, you had all the major central banks, you know, either cutting interest rates and restarting quantitative easing, bond buying. So in the U.S., we had U.S. Federal Reserve cut rates sharply in the first half of the year down to 0.125 percent. Uh, we had the Bank of England also cut interest rates in the U.K. down to 0.1 and enormous QE bond buying programs by both those central banks, but also by the European central bank. So what we've seen from all those major institutions say is that they're prepared to do whatever is necessary to help their respective economies recover and to put the conditions in place for them to be in a position to recover. In terms of specifics, we probably reached a lower bound in interest rates from the perspective of the ECB and the Bank of Japan. You know, when the crisis hit, the Eurozone was already in negative rates at minus 0.5 for the depot rate. And the ECB, uh, in reaction and to deal with the crisis, didn't cut rates any further. Instead, they introduced a new specific quantitative easing program. And since then, they've expanded that program. So the market's not ruling out the potential for further rate cuts in the Eurozone or the UK. And interestingly, in the last week or so, when you look at the UK, the market's pricing in roughly about 10 to 15 base points of a cut for the reduction by mid-2022. So... We saw it last year for a while the market was toying with the idea of negative interest rates in the UK and it's back to that situation again. What we do know from last year as we moved through the year was the Bank of England was not ruling that out, although it did seem to cool on the idea in the last couple of months. But back to where we are again now, the market is, is once again not ruling that out and it's kind of been priced in there, the potential for further rate cuts in the UK and potentially into negative territory. So in short, it's a prolonged period of rates at their current levels or even lower levels. So if we look further out for the futures contracts, if we look at the US futures, you know, interest rates there are not seen increasing until the second half of 2022. And if we look at the Eurozone and the UK, you know, it's late 2024 before rates are seen going up past the levels 
of where they are at the moment. So it's very much a lower for longer interest rate outlook. And I suppose, Sarah, when we look at that from a general markets perspective and asset classes, that does offer some support for equity markets, that lower for longer theme that's there. Yes, John. So obviously, lower interest rates do benefit equity markets. But if we look at the other asset classes as well, just throughout Q4, we'll see that they actually performed satisfactorily as well. So not as strong as equities with low to mid single digit returns in fixed income and hedge fund indices. So commodities had a strong final quarter up around 10.1%, but they still actually remained negative for the year on a euro hedge basis. We saw gold fall from its August highs of $2,075 to a low of $1,770 in early December, but they did actually finish out the year at $1,900 on the back of concerns of an uptick in COVID cases and weakness in the US dollar. Oil prices throughout the quarter rallied strongly, so they were up around 21% on the prospect of further supply cuts by OPEC, although the prices still remained lower for the full year. And if we can remember back, it was kind of the first time in history we ever saw oil prices turning negative. On a sectoral level, we have the consumer cyclicals and the technology stocks that were obviously the best performers previously mentioned, and they benefit mostly from the stay-at-home environment, and consumers are continuing to ramp up their online shopping and tech device usage as well. So the lower oil prices in 2020 hurt energy stocks, while real estate sector also posted negative one-year returns on concerns over future demand for retail and office property. So the prospect of acceleration in the distribution of vaccines over the coming months support a stronger foundation for economic recovery and provide a favourable backdrop for asset prices going into 2021. Global growth is forecasted to grow by 6% over 2021, up from its negative 4% in 2020. And if this happens, it'll actually be the strongest growth rate in over 45 years. The emerging markets are still expected to be the engines for growth, with estimated growth around 8 to 12 percent across China and India. Eurozone growth is expected to be around circa 6 percent, with the US around 5 percent. So we are still expecting there to be a recovery in corporate earnings in half two of 2021. So I think that we should really begin to think of this year as the year of two halves. With the first year, our priority is really watching how the vaccinations are progressing and the opening up of economies. We're expecting there to be a recovery in corporate earnings in the second half of the year. Sectorally, we're expecting industrials, consumer discretionary and energy to see the highest recovery. I'm sure we're all hoping for some form of a holiday or a return to normality in the second half of the year. Thanks, Sarah. I think we can all echo that. Plenty to look to and keep an eye on for the year coming. Sarah, staying with you, if I can, and turning our attention to the US this time. We've seen the Democrats taking control of both houses of Congress. What impact have you seen this having on the markets? And indeed, what impact do you think this will have as we move through 2021? If we think back to November, it was expected that the Democrats would take the presidency, but not necessarily the Senate. And given the recent win by the Democrats in Georgia last week, we're now in the position of a 50-50 split in the Senate, with a deciding vote with the Vice President Kamala Harris. And this effectively now gives the Democrats the control of the Senate. However, it wasn't a full sweep. With midterms two years away, the Democrats aren't necessarily going to keep control. So it's what can they pass before the midterms at this point? So what does this mean for markets? 
Democrats have been seeking a higher fiscal stimulus package. They want to increase corporate taxes, which are currently at 21%. Biden's seeking to increase them to 28%, which is in theory negative for corporates, but it's still lower than the 35%, which was seen prior to 2018. And whilst this has a downside risk to earnings, it's likely that they'd be phased in over several years and would be offset by increased infrastructure spending, particularly centered around clean energy and the green economy. Biden's also seeking to increase personal taxes for those earning over 400,000k per annum. If we look back through history, markets tend to perform better with a Democratic president at the helm, and we have seen this in increases in the S&P 500 over the past 50 years. So Sarah, when, when I look at the macro outlook, there's a lot of positives notwithstanding the uncertainty in the first couple of months of the year, and it seems to be similar from what you're saying from the key asset class out there. But, but obviously there are downside risks, and from your own perspective, what do you see as the key risks facing markets this year? So there are a few things to be cautious of. How much positivity has already been priced into the markets at this stage? We would need the positive news flow to remain in order to keep markets storming ahead. With rates remaining lower for longer, this causes challenging backdrop for bonds. So Eurozone sovereign bonds remain at expensive levels, although they continue to receive support from recently increased ECB purchases, which are set to continue. So there is still some investor nervousness over an increases in COVID cases and what the potential effect on European economies might be. And this actually might help yields. So if we look at European corporate bond markets, they should also benefit from quantitative easing and investor demand. However, the outlook for earnings in light of current lockdown measures will be watched closely over the first half of the year at least. So there is an overall positive backdrop with the general consensus outlook that corporate spreads should show a modest narrowing over 2021. And whilst we see continued nervousness around short-term economic growth, there is room for optimism that economic activity will normalise as the vaccine rollout increases and it becomes more widespread. Thanks, Sarah. John, if I may come to you now and turning to the FX markets, I suppose, we saw a lot of volatility in 2020 and really primarily driven by the pandemic, which is a bit of a theme of this podcast, as it has been in previous podcasts. Is it fair to say, however, that the global economies are still to realise the true impact of the pandemic? And if so, how will this influence the currencies? Yeah, so one thing we'll see this year is the impact of the pandemic on labour markets, because over the last couple of quarters, the difficulty has been to find what's the true level of underlying unemployment because various governments have been supporting the labour market. So it'll only be as we move through this year as those supports get removed from the labour market, we'll see what's the actual long-term impact on the unemployment rate and the level of permanent unemployment from the pandemic and the restrictions that were imposed where, you know, just some companies at the micro level just will not reopen even when the restrictions are eased. So as we move through this year, we'll get more sight on that because at the moment we still don't know because there is a support to labour markets by the government policy through income support schemes or furlough schemes that are there at the moment. If we look at uh, currency markets, the most volatile currency, the most reactive currency last year was actually sterling to the pandemic. So, you know, when volatility was at its height in markets generally back in February into March, it was sterling that was the weakest then. But actually, since May, you know, the euro sterling rate, if we look at that specific rate, traded in the 88 to 93p range. And if we look specifically at the euro sterling outlook first, and then I'll talk about euro dollar. If we look at euro sterling, okay, so we finally, eventually, nearly Christmas Day, I think it was Christmas Eve, we got the free trade agreement for the UK economy between the UK and the EU. But obviously, that's inferior to the single market. So that has a negative impact on the UK economy than if it had remained in the EU. At the same time, because the UK, like many other governments, 
has had to introduce fairly substantial fiscal support. We've seen a soaring budget deficit in the UK. And at the same time, as I referenced earlier, there is the potential for the Bank of England to lower interest rates further. So, you know, the weak economic backdrop and outlook for the UK economy, the soaring budget deficit, and the potential for lower or even negative UK official interest rates does pose some difficulties for the currency. So that's why, you know, even on the back of the news that there was a free trade agreement, we didn't see any major bounce for sterling. And today it's trading around the 90p range. And we think over the next couple of months, it's probably going to be in an 88 to 92p range. The other interesting thing we saw last year from a currency market perspective was in relation to the dollar. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, the dollar started to take on a, a softening, weakening trend. So, you know, euro dollar moved above the 120 level late last year. And more recently, in the last week or so, we traded actually above the 123 mark. And the next key level to keep an eye out for in euro dollar is obviously that 125 level, because that represents the high over the last six years. Our house view is, is that, you know, we do see that the dollar is potentially on a weakening trend now. You know, there's potential out there for robust global growth. So the U.S. will may no longer be a, a macro outperformer from that extent. So that will reduce the attractiveness of U.S. assets, and which is a potential negative for the dollar. The other thing is we mentioned earlier, too, around Fed funds rate being you know, cut substantially. So, you know, higher interest rates are no, are no longer a support for the dollar. And at the same time, the U.S. has its own twin deficit problem around the budget deficit and the balance of payments. And if we do see things pick up this year, and as Sarah said there, there's you know good potential for you know a strong risk appetite environment. That's also another potential negative for the dollar. So in level terms, we think you know in the early part of this year at least, we see euro dollar trading in a 120 to 125 range. But the theme for this year could be that you know that weakening trend to the dollar gathers further momentum as we move through the year. Thanks, John. So 88 to 92p on euro sterling and 120 to 125, watching out for 125 as a key level in 2021. Sarah, lastly, just to come back to yourself, you mentioned the potential risk to which we should be cautious of amidst the overall positive outlook. But what advice do you have for your customers as they look to 2021 and their portfolios? So our advice in private banking never changes when it comes to investing, and it really is to remain invested throughout the times of volatility as they do inevitably pass, and to make sure that you're holding a very appropriately diversified portfolio that's constructed to deliver satisfactory risk-adjusted returns over the long term. And for those who aren't actually invested at this time and are thinking about potentially investing, we always hear the term time and time again about timing the markets, when's the right time to go into the markets. And realistically, it is timing the markets, not timing the markets. So within private banking, we would maintain that the best approach for investing would be to adopt a portfolio that is fully diversified across geography, sectors and strategies. Thanks, Sarah. So in summary, diversified portfolios, stay invested and it's time, not timing. Sarah and John, I really appreciate you joining me today and sharing your informed views, which are, as always, very interesting. The quarterly investment market and review bulletin is available for download. My thanks to our customers and listeners for joining us on the podcast today. Don't forget, for those customers impacted, details of AIB support packages can be found at www.aib.ie forward slash COVID-19. And of course, stay close to all our latest podcasts by pressing the subscribe button to AIB's Market Talk on the podcast apps for iOS or Android. Have a happy and indeed healthy 2021, and we look forward to bringing this podcast to you again in April. Thanks for listening to the latest edition of AIB Market Talk. Allied Irish Bank's PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. First Trust Bank is a trademark of AIB Group UK PLC.
authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. Allied Irish Bank GB and Allied Irish Bank GB Savings Direct are trademarks used under licence by AIB Group UK PLC, authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority.